All right, as we turn to Hebrews chapter 4, we have uh, been out of Hebrews for a while. I think it was maybe in November. So just to bring us back up to speed, we want to think about the movements of this letter and what they tell us. First of all, that opening exordium, which speaks of the glories of Christ. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, you'll remember, they speak of many glorious things of Christ, but it ends with the point that He has become greater than the angels as He has received a more excellent name than they. Now that's an interesting way to end. And of course, the rest of that chapter exposits or argues that that is true, that Christ is greater than the angels. And this is established on many fronts and in many ways and through many scriptures. But ultimately the argument is they are servants. He is the Son and the Son is Lord. And so this is uh, made to us. And we spoke about, as we walk through it, uh, what is the purpose of this? Is this to battle angelic worship? And we said no. The beginning of chapter 2 gives us the answer as to why this argument is being made. When it speaks about not neglecting so great a salvation, it mentions that the first covenant mediated by angels carried with it sure punishment on those who neglected it or disobeyed it. And if that is true, then it just stands to reason that if angels are not as great as Christ, and angels were co-mediators of the old covenant, then the covenant that is mediated solely in Christ must be of higher glory and esteem and worth, and therefore it is a higher penalty to violate it or to disobey it. So he's just making the point. You can't go back to the old when you've received the new. What is done in Christ is of greater glory. And we would point you to 2 Corinthians. Paul makes this same argument, doesn't he? Uh, About... Uh, the the old covenant being glorious, but it's as if it has no glory at all when in standing in light of the new covenant. And so again, this is an argument we see throughout the New Testament, but that is what is being made here. Do not neglect this great salvation offered in Christ Jesus. It is a dangerous thing to do. Now he continues on that he did not put the world to come in subjection under angels. This is kind of Going back to chapter 1, hitting back on some notes from chapter 1, that movement in chapter 1 of uh, angels are ministering spirits, but Christ is the reigning Lord. It's not angels who will rule the age to come. It is Christ. It is the Son who will rule the age to come. And that brings us specifically to Psalm 8. And that is really the heavy lifting of the chapter for this author. He wants you to think about what is said there. Psalm 8 being a psalm in which David is looking back to creation saying, You created man. Why did you do it? Why were you mindful of him? You made him a little lower than the angels, but you crowned him with glory. You put all things in subjection under his feet. And yet, as we looked at at length then, it isn't really fulfilled in what happened in creation. There is a a fuller meaning here, and it points to Christ. And this author tells you that. He says, Christ is the one who was made a little lower than the angels. It's fulfilled ultimately in Christ. He came into the world. He was made lower than the angels. He was crowned with glory and honor. Now, why was this the case? It was necessary. If he was going to fulfill his role as our high priest, he had to be made like us. A priest must rightly represent the people he represents. Christ must be like us in all ways except without sin. That is how he is our faithful and perfect high priest. And that's what the text tells you. He is, in fact, that very thing. He is a faithful, a perfect high priest. And so all of this is given to us at the end of chapter 2. 
Now that brings us to chapter 3, and uh, we're going to look at chapter 3 as our first point, uh, just a real quick recap uh, in the sermon itself. So I want us to think really quick about these two points as we begin to move forward. First of all, a quick reminder of what we saw in chapter 3, and second of all, an important point that this author wants you to draw from the argument of chapter 3 as we're moving into the argument of chapter 4. So beginning first with this idea of a quick reminder, what was the argument of chapter 3? Well, we spent some time there. It begins immediately, as we would expect, with a comparison between Christ and Moses. Now, we said we would expect that because the entire argument of or comparison and contrast between Christ and the angels is based on what? That angels were mediators of covenant. Christ is the mediator of a covenant, and Christ is greater than the angels, and therefore His covenant is greater than theirs. But this author has already let us know angels weren't the sole mediators of that first covenant. There was also another one, a man of great esteem, a man honored by his people. This is Moses. And we would argue if our understanding is right of chapter 1, that the entire point is leading to that first four verses of chapter 2 in which he makes the argument that the covenant that in Christ is greater than the covenant that the angels mediated, then he must also deal with Moses, who has many uh, points in its favor. First of all, Moses not only was the mediator of the Old Covenant, a mediator of the Old Covenant, but he was also a representative of God amongst his people, a servant, a leader, an apostle, we might argue, one sent by God on mission. And we might also say that he was an intercessor for the people of God. We looked at that. Aaron is the high priest, but in the text that this even refers back to, Aaron goes to Moses and says, intervene with God on our behalf. So we see many times where Moses is the one who really intercedes on behalf of the people of God. Now what's interesting is, there's a comparison here. Listen to what it begins to say in chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, this is how he speaks to the people to whom he's writing, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Remember we spoke about this. Christ is a greater apostle than Moses was. Now, it seems strange to put it in terms like that of Christ being an apostle, but he was one sent on a mission. It's literally what it means. Apostle means one sent out, an ambassador, one who goes representing Christ went on a mission uh, that he was directed by his father. And he is the high priest of our confession. We've established that in chapter 2. And notice it says he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was faithful in all his house. Now we went back and looked at Numbers 12 and saw that exact reference that it was made that God said Moses has a special place. He is faithful in all my house as a servant in all my house. We compared that to a steward in the Old Testament. He said there are many prophets. You'll remember Aaron and Miriam were saying well he speaks to us as well. And God says when I speak to a prophet I speak through dreams or visions but when I speak to Moses I speak face to face, and not in dark sayings. I speak to Moses plainly. Again, I don't know how you could speak more honorably of a servant of God than that. This does not dismiss Moses at all. This does not lessen Moses at all. Moses is a man of great honor. God honored Moses. God said, how dare you question Moses, Aaron and Miriam? How dare you? You see the honor I've given him. How dare you question him? And yet, notice the comparison to Christ. Yes, He is a steward. 
We gave the picture of Eleazar, the trusted servant of Abraham, the steward, faithful in every area of Abram's household. But that's not like Christ. Christ is not like Eleazar. Christ is like Isaac. He is the son, the inheritor, Lord over the household. Eleazar has some level of authority that's given to him by Abraham, but all authority will be Isaac's. Eleazar will serve Isaac. Great difference, isn't there? And here, Moses is a servant in all God's house, faithful, honored, but he is not the son. The son rules and the son reigns. The son is over the household. But what is this household? The people of God. The people of God. And he makes that clear in this very section. Now, in all of this, it's leading to a very important place. As we move down the text, you'll see that he wants to use this uh, speaking of Moses to segue into something that happened in the days of Moses. Moses was a leader, a faithful leader. But in the days of Moses, something happened. He led the people out of the land of Egypt and into the wilderness. And the people had seen many wondrous things. You may remember we looked at this in depth. This is actually David writing Psalm 95, speaking back, hearkening back to those days. And David saying to his own generation, be careful. Actually, Psalm 95 is something like a call to worship. But there's a warning mixed in, isn't there? As you should rightly be worshiping God and thanking God for all that He's done in David's day, delivering us from our enemies, giving us rest and peace, allowing us to bring the tabernacle to Jerusalem, all these great and glorious things that God has done. David says there's a danger in this time of comfort and peace, of forgetting the God who gave you all these blessings you're now enjoying. Where would he turn to point that out? He would say, just hearken back to the wilderness. Here was a generation enslaved. God, by His mighty hand, led them out of Egypt through signs and wonders and miracles. And not just before they left, on the way out, parting the sea so that they could cross on dry land. Brought them into the wilderness as they had need. He provided food. He provided water. He provided direction. He provided everything they needed. So, of course, if we were to turn back, we would read of a people so thankful, constantly praising, constantly worshiping, constantly thankful. But that's not what we read, is it? We read of people constantly complaining, constantly grumbling, constantly unhappy, constantly thankless, thankless for what God has done. How can you get more thankful than to say God should never have done it at all? Wouldn't we be better to just go back to Egypt? We were enslaved there, but at least it was comfortable. Did He bring us into the wilderness to die? Is that trust in God? So again, David hearkens back to that and says to his own generation, Today, if you hear His voice, just as they did, Don't respond in the same way they did. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, 
saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Psalm 95. They shall not enter my rest. A promise to the generation that rebelled against God, they will not enter this promised rest. Well, what is this rest? The promised land. Canaan. That's what's referred to in that picture, right? They will not enter the land of rest, the land of promise. And that land would have been a land of rest. One scholar said if they had entered the land and taken it as God had instructed them and kept it as God had instructed, (coughs) excuse me, honored and glorified God during all of it, if that had happened, it would have been a place of safety and rest. It would have been a glorious place. It would have been a place like in the days of David. Rest from all their enemies. A place to worship God. A place to live their lives. And yet this generation fell down dead in the wilderness. Now, all of this is a reminder in the generation that's reading this letter when it was written 2,000 years ago. The author of Hebrews says, and by the way, that today, today if you hear his voice, was the day in the wilderness. And it was the day in the days of David's writing in Psalm 95. And this author says it's today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not be like those who came before, who died in the wilderness, who did not receive the promise. Now, we could argue the same thing in David's day. Many saw all the glorious things. Many knew of God, were around the people of God, enjoyed the blessings of God, and yet never had faith in God, and therefore died outside the promise. Now, the author of Hebrews, as we're moving into today's text, is going to ask you to think about, wait a minute, I thought they would have been a part of the promise. They were in the land of Canaan. They were in the land of Canaan when they died. They didn't die outside the land of Canaan. So then, by what David is saying, it reasons that there is a promise beyond the land, isn't there? There is a promise that the land foreshadows and points to, but is greater than the land, because David could say in his day, there's a danger of dying outside the promised rest, even though they were in the land of rest. And so we want to look at this. So there is this today that we must think about. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In fact, he comes to very near the end of the chapter and quotes that again. Quotes that again. And we're left to ask the question, well, who's he referring to? We'll read the last couple of verses. For who having heard rebelled? Who are the ones that died in the wilderness? Indeed, was it not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? All the adults, more or less, maybe Caleb and Joshua excluded. They all died in the wilderness. They were all the ones who had seen the mighty works of God. Now, who, with whom was he angry for 40 years? Verse 17. Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? Now, we could think that the failure to enter promise was based on the sin. But, he makes it clear the sin is an external manifestation of an inward lack of faith in God. Look at verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So again, a lack of obedience. 
So we see, he says, that they could not enter in because of what? Unbelief. Unbelief. Now that brings us to a therefore that begins today's text and an important point that this author wants us to think about as we begin to move forward today. Therefore, he says, so based on all that's just been said in chapter 3, particularly in this Exodus warning, the entire warning of a, a promised rest for the people of God that has been missed by so many who were near it but did not have faith and therefore died outside of it. Therefore, based on all that, he says there is a promise which remains of entering God's rest. Now this is the author of Hebrews speaking in his day. But we've already argued in chapter 3 that we could say this in our own day. This today is a day of grace. Every day in which you can hear the voice of God and respond, this is a day of grace. And he says here, be careful in this day. For there's a promise still remaining for the people of God to enter the rest of God. Now, one thing that's interesting is if we were to think this is just about entering the land of Canaan, we would say, well, how much sense does this make for us, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense. But he wants you to think in this kind of rabbinical style of argumentation that he often uses. He says, wait a minute, it can't be that. Why? Because why was David talking about it? David was in the promised land when in Psalm 95 he referred back to this very thing and said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion in the wilderness. For there is a promise of entering the rest. And this author says, it must be that some shall enter it, because he said, those specific people shall not enter it. Therefore, there are those who do enter it. And this is a promise of rest that is open in the days of Moses, in the days of David, in the days of the author of Hebrews, in our own day. It's a day, it's a rest that is open to those who hear it, and who trust in it. And this is the question that we come to. If this promise remains, what is this rest? Well, we're going to kind of get a brief overview of the chapter here. But he's going to make it clear that the land of Canaan, the rest that was offered there, security, rest, comfort, uh, if you will, in the land of God, foreshadowed a greater rest. Now, where is this rest spoken of? Look just a little bit beyond it, what we read earlier. For we have believed, do enter the rest. This is verse 3. We will enter the rest if we believe, he says. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He said that those who do not, who he swore in his wrath that they will not, who are those, those that did not have faith. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now listen to this, verse 4. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, he's establishing a creation rest here, the rest that God himself entered. And he says in verse 5, And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. The author of Hebrews is connecting these rests, the rest of God and the rest that the people who lacked faith and died in the wilderness cannot enter. They shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, It is appointed that some shall enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter it because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, 
after such a long time, as it has been said, today if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Do you see what He's saying here? There is a promise prefigured in the land, foreshadowed in the land, pictured in the land, but that's greater than the land. It's a greater rest. The land pictures it, but isn't the fullness of it. There is a spiritual counterpart that is greater than that physical picture of rest in the land. This is a rest that God enters or offers His people, the rest that He Himself has entered. That's what He's saying. God has entered rest. He says, they shall not enter His rest, but those who are His people will enter this rest. And this is a rest that remains for the people of God. Now, to make this point a little more substantial, we said David writes about it in his day and says, today if you will hear His voice. In other words, this offer remains in David's day. Well, it can't be Canaan, we would say. This author makes that abundantly clear in verse 8. Joshua did enter the land. Moses did not. That generation did not, but that next generation did. And Joshua, as their leader, entered the land. If that was the promise that was being spoken of, if that is the rest that was being spoken of, then David would have had nothing more to say. Isn't that what this author says in verse 8? For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. If Joshua had offered rest in taking the people into the land of promise, then there would have been nothing more for David to speak of in Psalm 95. The rest would have been entered. It would have been fulfilled. It would have been all done. But David speaks of another day, a today in his day in which the people of God can enter the rest of God. So this author is saying, long after David, 2,000 years ago, he is saying, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. And we can rightly preach today, there remains a rest for the people of God. Today, there remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from His. We're going to be looking at that a little bit more as we get closer to that text. We're just wanting to set this point up. There remains a promise of rest for the people of God. Now, this gives occasion for an author, you will not be surprised, to offer a warning. To offer a warning, as he does throughout this letter. I don't know how your text is uh, written there in verse 1 of chapter 4. In the New King James, it says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Let us fear. It's interesting, in the Greek, that comes first. Let us fear. Let us fear. There is a call here to be afraid. To be afraid. To be warned. To be careful. To not overstep this. To to not just walk past it without thinking, but to fearfully consider what's being said here. Why? Well, the same thing he said in chapter 3. In the days of the Exodus, an entire generation left with Moses. An entire generation saw the glories and the wonders of what God did. And that entire generation missed the promise. So near... In, its, in the presence of its being preached. 
If you doubt that, look at, again, verse 2. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us. Now, he's talking about his own generation, but look at what else he says. The good news was preached to them as well. In other words, they heard all the word of God. They heard everything God said. They heard all the proclamation of Moses amongst the people. They heard it all. They saw it all. When they had questions, they could ask them. They had access to all of it. And yet they died in the wilderness outside of the promise. Now, since that was such a large number of people, this author says, beware. Beware. Don't take for granted because you're amongst the people of God that you are of the people of God. Recognize that what went wrong there was this. For indeed the gospel was preached to them as, as to us as to well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Why didn't it profit them? It was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. Now my friends, can we come to church every week? Can we hear the word of God and not believe it? Yes. Yes, we can. And this author says, be very careful. You have examples from before, from your forefathers in the faith, and, and in many of these people's cases, their literal uh, forefathers. You have examples of this, of people who had access to every blessing God could possibly give. Yet they didn't believe. Their hearts weren't changed. They weren't stirred. Their hearts were hard. And you see this. It's the very thing that he warns about. There's a danger here. There's a danger of being near the gospel. There's a danger of being near the promise. There's a danger of being near it and missing it. And so what this author is warning a people in his generation is, be very careful. When you hear the gospel proclaimed, when you're amongst the people of God, be very cautious. Now, in reference here, let's draw it back to what this is actually about. You have a group of people, Hebrew Christians, who are thinking of leaving the church to go back to the synagogue. And what he's saying is, don't take for granted your salvation. Don't take for granted that you are part of this gospel community. Because if you walk out the door, you prove you were never part of it. Now again, I want to establish this one more time, so I don't do it all throughout this chapter. He makes this point. The people in the wilderness, did they lose their faith? Or did they never have it? I think he answers this over and over again. He says they could not enter because of unbelief that the word didn't profit them because it was never mixed with faith. They never believed. They were always outside the promise. And so my friends, the author of Hebrews is warning those listening here, take very seriously the steps that you take because they might reveal in you an evil heart of unbelief in turning away from the living God, in walking away. My friends, these warnings are given to a people to stir them up and wake them up, to make them consider the seriousness of what they are presented. If we are the people of God, we will not walk away. We cannot walk away transformed by the Spirit of God. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, be very careful and consider the warning that's being given to you today. If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. 
Because God swore of the generation that did, they shall not enter His rest. And my friends, this author wants you to remember there is a promise of rest for the people of God. Don't treat it lightly.